Do you have products sitting at your own facility? Do you use a 3PL? Do you own your ingredients or inventory while it's at the co-packer? That Those are the things that you wanna understand and properly insure for that type of loss. Welcome to the Startup CPG Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Freitag. Less than a year ago, I had an insurance emergency. I searched insurance in the Startup CPG Slack and found Danielle Holyoke's name. I shot her a quick email and we jumped on a call. In record time, she solved a problem that other brokers had told me wasn't possible. I was so excited when Amelia Risk became a proud partner of Startup CPG because it meant we could do a podcast episode packed with game-changing knowledge just for you. Danielle is the COO and co-founder of Amelia Risk, the better for you insurance broker. Listen in as Danielle shares the role of an insurance broker, the most common types of insurance applicable to CPG, think product liability, workers comp, recall, how to navigate insurance requirements for retailers, how umbrella insurance might not be what you think it is, and more. Hi, Danielle. Welcome to the show. So glad you're here today. How are you? Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm doing I'm doing really well. Awesome. Well, I'd love if you could start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background and your company, and then we'll dive into some nitty gritty insurance questions. Yeah, sure. So I've been an insurance broker for just over 10 years, and I started right out of college at a small boutique brokerage here in the Bay Area. Um, I totally I fell into insurance. It wasn't something I was looking at getting into, but I was really drawn to risk management as an industry when once I got into it. Um, I'm fascinated by industries where there's an entire world that's going on behind what you see. And uh, insurance is, I think, that for a lot of people. Um, there's not a whole lot known widely about it. So I was really into that. I liked learning about the nitty gritty of various types of businesses and why they need certain types of insurance. And I, I really like the technical part of it. I started my career working with startups, mostly in the tech space, actually. But a few years in, I got the opportunity to work with some fast-growing, larger CPG brands that was really fun. So I ended up learning a lot about CPG insurance that way. And then the company that I was working for was acquired by a very large brokerage. And while I got to see a lot of differences in the way things are done at those big shops that are positives, what I also saw was a significant gap in what startups need as far as risk management and what they're getting. So I left my business, I left that brokerage rather, and my business partner, Liz, and I started Amelia Risk so that we could provide true risk management services to startups, which are often not provided this expertise. So that's what we do. And we work primarily with CPG brands and I love it. Excellent. That's awesome. And we'll probably get into some examples, but I can definitely speak from experience of having had you be the person that I called to help me sort through some of the, the insurance and the CPG world. It's it's just has been so helpful. And so I'm really glad to have an expert like you on today to talk through some of these these pieces. And so kind of to to lay some groundwork, I'm thinking back to when I started at LiveBar and I was new to the CPG industry, we were trying to figure out what kind of insurance do you need as a CPG product, especially a food product. And I remember just being feeling left out to dry. I was calling around <laughs> local companies and they were like, I don't know what insurance a startup needs, or I don't know about food, like, you know, probably general liability. And I probably talked to three different brokers and I couldn't really get great answers. And I was just like, I don't, am I doing the right thing? And so thinking back to my past self and also to our members that are newer to the industry or just trying to get the lay of the land of what they're going to need 
Can you maybe kind of walk us through just some some general pieces of of what to start thinking about as you start a CPG company from insurance or you know, you're getting ready to scale. What's the kind of lay of the land? What are kind of some of the common terms that we're going to hear? And then we can kind of go deeper into to the each different type, but just mm-hmm. kind of a lay of the land for for if you're new to the game. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So and I, I totally agree. I think it is it's hard to figure out what you need, right? I think that's the pitfall of, of my own industry is that it's not transparent. It's not easy to understand how do I make the right decision here? What are the things I need to know to make the right decision? And who do I talk to? So yeah, it it can be difficult. So I think um, in the very beginning, you should understand that your product is your risk, right? Your product is the business risk that you have. So um, in terms of in terms of insurance anyway, right? There's there's a lot of different sort of things that you can look at, but you're putting out a product into this world and people in the CPG world are consuming it right? And what if they get hurt? Or what if something happens to their property? That's a little less likely for most consumable products. But the big the big risk is what if my product pe- makes people sick, or they have a bad reaction, or they chip a tooth, or they cut their hand opening it, right? Those are the types of things you should you should just sort of understand about at the very beginning of just running a business. And then I would look for the first thing I would do if I were uh, a CPG brand owner is look for the experts in that space. So um, I think that's a, that's another key area here is when you're looking for any advisor, really, whether it's you know legal advice or insurance expertise, you want to look for folks that focus on what you're actually doing. And then everything kind of falls into place there because they can then advise you of what it is that you need. But uh, to more directly answer that question, the first thing you'll likely need is product liability. That is that is going to be the first thing you need and the last thing you need and everywhere in between, right? It's going to be the primary driver of your entire insurance program for the life of the company because that is what covers your business for the way that people use or interact with your product. Then there's a million other things that you need along the way. But I think that one thing I've always thought is, you know, I think that people are really scared to talk <laughs> to me um, or, or any other or scared to sort of even open the box of what is insurance and when do I need it? Because they're afraid of being told um, you need all of these things right now and you need uh, this much of it. And um, there's there's this feeling of sort of being trapped in that, right? But I don't think that that's the case. I think startups don't need everything right away, um, but you do need a couple of things. And I likely that's going to start with the product liability, which is actually a component of general liability. Great. That's super helpful. And to take it even one step further back, because I didn't understand this and I don't even know if I fully understand. I obviously don't understand everything about the insurance industry, but just can you talk a little bit about a broker's role in the insurance, you know, finding process? And because I know that was a little bit confusing for me in the beginning and also Mm -hmm. just some of the role that you can play with, you know, like I've gotten like, I've gotten a quote and then you get a 50 page document back and you're like, cool, I have to make a decision on this by tomorrow. I don't know what most of this means and, you know, how a broker can help with some of those pieces. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this is actually my favorite, my favorite topic to discuss because I think it's really 
totally misunderstood. And really, so the broker, we all understand what a broker is in that they're a middleman or woman, right? Between you and the end uh, thing that you're buying or working with. And I think there's a common misconception in many industries where there's brokers that you're paying extra to be using them or they're taking a cut of, of whatever it is that you're paying. That's not untrue. We, you know, brokers do take commissions and they do take, they are paid, but it, it isn't quite as linear, right? And so first of all, the broker's job is to represent you, the brand owner or the company. We do not work on behalf of the insurance companies. We work on behalf of you. And so there's to, to give you a little bit of a macro understanding of the structure, you are the, the brand owner or the insured, and there's the insurance company, and that's where the underwriters work. And those are the people that offer the quotes or the policies. And they say, okay, well, for this company, we'll offer XYZ coverage and we'll offer it this price. My job is to negotiate for the best coverage, the best price, um, the broadest language, the fewest exclusions, right? The insurance company's incentive is to offer just as, as much coverage as they need to to be competitive and win business, but exclude as many things as possible that they're concerned about, right? They don't want to pay claims. <laughs> That's their goal. Collect premium, don't pay claims. My job is to work on behalf of the brand and and fight for your incentive, which is better coverage, lower premium, and make sure that your biggest concerns about your business are insured properly. And um, so that's that's really the the biggest structure there. And and honestly, I think that it's worth mentioning that the the cost, right? People are like, okay, well, what does it cost to work with someone like you? Why why wouldn't I just go direct? There are some policies you can get from insurance companies directly, and oftentimes they are similarly priced. You don't, you know, pay brokers out of out of pocket. The insurance company does, and one of the reasons that we can be so competitive, and it can be often the same price as you would have going direct, is that we are doing a lot of work for the insurance company. We are pre-underwriting the risk. We are advising you of the risk. So there's different distribution channels and different ways that this all can level out in terms of premium. But ultimately, our job is to be your advocate, the brand's advocate, not the insurance company's advocate. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's that's a super helpful lay of the land. I'm also wondering about kind of the when you're first kind of dipping your toe into, all right, I need some insurance. And, you know, I reach out to Danielle and you you send me back some paperwork and say, fill this out and then I'll I'll get you some quotes. I'm curious about that process has really stressed me out every time that I've done it. And I, I've always like agonized over the the details, especially when you're a startup and you're like, mm -hmm. I don't know what my revenues are going to be. I don't know. Or, you know, maybe you've raised capital. So you've got a bunch of shareholders and you're like, do you like who owns enough of the company for this to matter. I'm kind of curious if you can kind of talk us through the paperwork process, what it's used for, if you have any tips for people filling it out, how to kind of take out some of the maybe fear factor to get it to get it perfect or like, you know, mm -hmm. what if I do it wrong? What if I share too much or too little? Like, I don't know. I I think a little bit of what you mentioned of like a little bit of, you know, I'm not afraid of you as a, as a person, but there's this fear of insurance, yeah. you know, being like, yeah. what if I do this wrong? And I'm curious if you could kind of talk us through that process and how to make it a little 
simpler or feel better? Yeah. So I think the first, those are all such good questions. And I think that the first thing to understand is that these applications, you know, first of all, um, it's an unfortunate reality, right? You have to fill out applications in order to get quotes. There's, there's no way for us to do it without you giving us information about your business. So, you know, the first thing is that when an insurance underwriter is evaluating a business to, to insure it, they want to know about it. You know, they, they want to know about the product. They want to know what ingredients you use, where uh, those ingredients come from. Are they from US suppliers or are you sourcing internationally? Who's doing your co-manufacturing? Do they have insurance themselves? What are your quality controls? You know, where do you sell this product? Um, they want to understand those things because all of those things are factors in calculating your risk. And so those are the things that they want to understand. Um, the application process can be very daunting for some. Uh, it depends on which applications are sent, right? And, and every broker tries to send the most digestible applications that they can that get enough information um, without needing to go back and forth a ton. But yeah, I mean, there are really difficult things. If you're really, really new, um, you might not know what your estimated annual revenue is. <laughs> and that is tough, but it is some, it is the primary factor that we use to rate. And so we have to apply something. What I typically tell folks is be conservatively realistic. Don't talk to me like you're talking to retailers or you're talking to investors or, uh, you know, anything like that and tell, telling me you're, highest hopes and dreams. What I want to know is what is your conservative and realistic best estimate? And then we use that. Um, and so then there's a bunch of questions like, again, about quality control, um, about your co-packers or suppliers. And what I typically try to advise is if you don't know the answer to something, just move on. Um, I would rather have an application that has a few missing things um, than have too much confusing information. And um, these applications are also, they're not industry agnostic, but they are very generic, right? So if you're a peanut butter company, you don't have an application that is specific to peanut butter brand startups. You have a food app, right? And that that means $10,000 in revenue. That means $500 million in revenue. This is the same application. So yep. it's not um, it's not niche enough. You will have questions you don't know how to answer. The other thing, and I was just talking to someone about this the other day, is, uh, and she's very early on in her business. And what I said was, actually, you can use these applications as a little bit of a guide. Like, what should I be doing? If there's questions about, do you have um, contracts with your manufacturers? And I, I just was listening to the, the last podcast on this. Then you know that that's something the underwriter is looking for, right? It, it's kind of a, there's a bit of a lead. You should probably have <laughs> contracts with your co-manufacturers, right? Or do you have a hold procedure? Um, before before product is sent out. Well, if your answer is no, maybe think about doing that. You know, those are the types of things that it actually can be a little bit of a resource in terms of what are some of the things I should be doing that maybe I didn't know I should be doing. Um, but after having read this application, I do. The other thing is that a lot of startups get really concerned after, um, or a lot of you know folks who are <laughs> running startups get really concerned after reading the application, because they're like, oh my God, this whole page, the answer is no. And 
that's not good. And what I typically say to that is that, you know, the underwriters and I and the people that are going to be involved in this, we know that you're a startup and we don't expect startups to have all of these things. Because again, this application is used for um, all sizes. So I know it can be daunting, but it can also be doable. And, you know, it's one of these things where you don't have to have perfect answers. You don't have to have complete answers. You just have to, to get started on it. And we can often, if you're that early on, we can often get coverage with that amount of information. Awesome. That that's definitely helpful. And yeah, I think that that makes sense that the the application can be a little bit of a, a guide of some of the things that you mm-hmm. need or you're going to need. So that's very helpful. I'm also curious about because something I also found out as I went through a CPG for the first time was when you're either you land a new retailer or you are applying for a retailer and they're going to ask you for insurance certificates. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember the first inclination at the Live Bar team was, oh, well, we'll just, you know, we'll just change the address on this uh, insurance certificate and then and then we'll send it off. And I was like, I don't think we edit <laughs> the insurance certificate directly ourselves. I think there's like there's an official process and then, yes. you know, learned about additional insureds and and all of those pieces. And I'm wondering if you could kind of talk through what that process can look like of brands getting into new retailers and making sure that they then have coverage or, you know, you're applying to get into Kroger. They have specific requirements. And I know mm-hmm. I've sent off to a broker like, OK, here's what Kroger says I need. Can you tell me what that's going to cost? And mm-hmm. can you just talk a little bit about the the retailer process and how they're involved with your insurance? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, you're right. You can't you can't edit yourself. The certificates, um, the certificates of, of insurance and sometimes it's certificate of liability. Sometimes it's an evidence of coverage. Sometimes it's referred to as a COI. All of those things are pretty much synonymous. Um, but what they are is a snapshot. It is an official document from the insurance company or your broker, someone representative, you know, representative of the insurance company saying, this is the coverage that this brand or company has. And it says what the policy number is and the effective and expiration dates, the limits of liability for certain types of coverage. And then there's a section for the certificate holder, and that is often the retailer or the distributor or, you know, something like that. And then there's a section that says, okay, and, you know, Target or Kihi or, you know, whatever is an additional insured and there's a waiver of subrogation and there's all of this insurance lingo that is uh, associated with that. And it is the broker's job, or again, the insurance companies, if you if you went direct to the insurance company, to complete that certificate in a way that the retailer or the, the certificate holder is asking and that complies with what your policy provides, right? So again, things like additional insured and notices of cancellation and uh, primary non-contributory and some of these some of these uh, clauses, if you will, are very standard and um, most policies provide that either by default or by endorsement or changing of the policy. Um, so the you know the process really is that your broker or your insurance company should be able to produce that certificate very quickly. The caveat to timing and sometimes um, you know the reasons for the holdup might be because you don't meet those requirements. So um, you know Whole Foods and Target, uh, they may have they ha- may have very high requirements. 
they could require 10 million in general liability. But if you're a brand doing $750,000 in revenue, you likely aren't carrying $10 million in insurance limit. And so sometimes it's a matter of you just got to pay to play, right? If you want, if you want to be on those shelves, you buy that, you buy those limits. And sometimes depending on the retailer, you can negotiate that and you can say, actually, we only have uh, 1 million uh, per occurrence and a $2 million aggregate. Is that going to be enough? And sometimes they'll adjust it and they'll take it. Um, and sometimes they won't. So then the process becomes, you know, we have to go out to the insurance underwriters and say, hey, we need higher limits. We need an umbrella policy to sit over this primary general liability that the client has, and we need to get to 10 million. And often insurance companies, you know, they don't, there is a bit of a moral dilemma sometimes with high limits is they don't, they don't want the insurance policy to become your largest asset. And so typically, uh, there are standards of limits being offered relative to a company's size. Um, that said, everyone is aware that, you know, there are, there are, contracts that require high limits and underwriters will very often comply with that. So it shouldn't be too big of an issue to get higher limits. When it becomes an issue is really when you have um, what I call a non-vanilla product. You know, you are a dietary supplement or some sort of uh, wellness product or you're a baby product, baby food, dog food, um, skincare. Those are more difficult risks um, from an insurance perspective. And so they take a little bit more of piecing together a puzzle to get higher limits, but it, it can be done. Um, you know, there's a saying in my industry that anything is insurable for a price. So even when something seems uninsurable, um, there's always someone that will. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned umbrella policies here, and I'm wondering if you could just kind of break down some of the, like maybe into some kind of examples just to help help make the terms kind of feel relatable of like I'm thinking like okay you've got general liability product liability umbrella like what are some examples of those things like when it is an umbrella versus product liability like if if I have a full recall is that part of my product liability like where is where does that lie just kind of maybe some examples of some common things that you're insuring for with mm -hmm. these different terms yeah so i think maybe it'd be helpful if i give you sort of scenarios of a company and what might happen on a day-to-day -day basis and then That'd what policy would sort of respond to that so okay so let's say you have a soap company you manufacture you can manufacture some of your own soap and then you also have contract manufacturer for some other products um and you've got 15 employees and let's say your um your office and your warehouse are located in texas and there's a huge fire at your facility and some employees get hurt and your building burns to the ground and you've lost $75,000 worth of finished product. So again, first of all, I'm going to apologize because I have to sort of portray worst case scenarios and that's really scary for some. But that, that exact uh, situation could touch multiple policies, right? And so your employees getting hurt, that's workers' compensation. You need to have that in all 50 states at the time that you hire your first employee that is a non-negotiable. So that is a policy you have to have when you have an employee. If you lose all of your own product, then you 
need to make more, right? You've lost $75,000 worth of your own stuff. So that is a property loss. And there are a few different ways you can insure your property or inventory. I I won't necessarily go into that because it's really nitty gritty, but you want to make sure that where is your product stored and who's insuring it? And is it properly insured, right? Do you have products sitting at your own facility? Do you use a 3PL? Do you own your ingredients or inventory while it's at the co-packer, that those are the things that you want to understand and properly ensure for that type of loss. Another scenario is, you know, let's say you get your product out. I actually had a client who had this cocktail mixer, like a one serving cocktail mixer in a little glass bottle. And it was actually a really cute little bottle. But the problem with it is that the neck was very vulnerable and the neck kept breaking during shipment. And so um, that is a scenario where your product, if it, let's say, cut someone while they're opening their product or drops and um, you know, and in some somehow cuts them while they uh, are opening it. That's a bodily injury claim. Bodily injury is something that uh, the, the product liability policy protects against that type of scenario. So the product liability, which again is a component of general liability. So you have a general liability policy. You have people out there who are getting hurt just trying to open this product to use it. That's the policy that would respond if they sue you, right? Now, recall is a little bit different. A lot of folks, their intuition says that this should be the same policy, but it's actually a separate policy. A recall policy is one where it will respond if you need to pull your product out of the market or recall the product, destroy it, or replace it, right? And there's a lot of different coverages that are included on that policy, but in a nutshell, it's the cost to take it out of the market. And it only will trigger the recall policy if there is impending bodily injury or property damage. So another common question that I have about recall is, what if my product doesn't taste right? What if the co-packer makes the product, there's nothing wrong with it necessarily, it just doesn't taste the way it's supposed to taste because this ingredient can be funky. Let's say you have a base of coconut milk, well, or, you know, coconut water. Sometimes coconut water just tastes a little off, can I can I use my recall policy to take that out of the market? The answer is no, not unless that coconut water is going to hurt someone, right? And so there's all of these different policies that work together to protect your business from various things that could happen, right? And where one policy excludes this type of thing, the other policy includes it. And so it's a puzzle. You have to have a robust insurance program that protects your business from all these different angles. And these policies really work together to do that. So just to clarify for product, so like your general liability, product liability isn't necessarily going to cover a recall. And so if you have a good broker, they're going to let you know that. But otherwise, you're going to have to be thinking about these things as a brand, because I'm assuming your retailers and everyone are also going to want you to have insurance for, for a recall. Yeah, some some retailers will require recall. Um, some some don't, and and I think it can also be brand specific. How much of that product are they putting on your shelves? And the reason 
that they care about that is because most often the, you know, the good recall policies, and and I say good because there's a spectrum. There's, you know, really, really bad policies that basically do nothing but give you, you know, a, um, a piece of paper that says you have insurance. And then there's really good ones. The good ones provide third party recall. So if you you know, have to pull your product off the shelves of, um, you know, Target all around the country, Target is incurring a cost because of your recall. Their employees are taking this off the shelf. They've lost income because they were supposed to sell this much of your product, right? And so that recall policy that you have also covers those things for Target. So that's why some of the, and I'm just using Target as an example, of course, but um, that's why some of the retailers will like to see recall insurance. And yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that is the moral of the story here is that you can't possibly become expert enough at insurance um, while you're running a CPG brand to decipher all this stuff and to read through the policies and understand what it covers and what it doesn't. And oh, if it doesn't cover this, how do I get it? Right. That is your broker's job. You are outsourcing that responsibility to someone else who is an expert to explain this to you and then to allow you to make that decision. I think that's another misconception that I run into a lot is that it's almost as if people, you know, don't want to hear all of these explanations of policies because um, I think there's a feeling of I don't get to then make the decision. And what I want to emphasize is you are in the driver's seat of your business. And my job is to explain to you how insurance works and what is covered and what is not. Because buying your first policy doesn't mean that a bad day is insured. It means that very specific things are insured, right? And then you can start planning for, okay, what type of insurance do I want to buy today? What am I going to push off till next year? What am I going to push off until I'm a $5 million company? And you get to make those decisions. But you know, it's my opinion that you shouldn't be doing that in a vacuum, right? You, you want to understand these things so that you can make educated decisions about it. And I will actually also mention that the, the umbrella term is is a pol- the umbrella policy is one that increases your limits of liability specifically the general liability it does not sit over all policies and it's not a catch all and i think that's another thing folks ask me for umbrella policies just kind of like to cover everything and that's not how it works it, it's one where it increases the liability limits you already have and again we mentioned that with you know getting into retailers or something like that, where you're contractually required to carry more insurance. And then you'll also want to get it just as you grow. You know, you you start out, you're a million dollar company. A couple of years later, you're doing 15 million. A couple of years later, you're doing 40 million. Um, you need to be increasing your limit of liability across that spectrum to keep up with your increased exposure. That's a super helpful distinction because I think I think the term umbrella can be misleading because you're like, oh, umbrella, Mm -hmm. like you're you're picturing an umbrella and you're picturing it going over everything. And you're like, oh, cool. I'm just covered for whatever happens. I'll get some umbrella insurance. But hearing you talk about that more, I'm picturing more like general liability is a umbrella and umbrella liability is having another umbrella on top of your umbrella. (laughs) Yeah, it's almost it's it's almost like a tower rather than an umbrella. And, you know. Technically, there are the, the umbrella sits over about three policies, um, generally speaking, but it, it's not the ones that you think it is, right? It's not the property and it's not the recall. It's, it's 
it's just really the general liability auto and workers comp. So, um, but for the purpose of CPG brands, I think it's most important to think it as think of it as a tower that increases your product liability because that's primarily going to be the driver of purchasing the umbrella. Right, and then. Just, I'd like to touch briefly on workers' compensation because, as you mentioned, like from the time you have one employee, you've you've got to have that. And I know that that was tricky for me to navigate at first as well, and try to figure out the different like quarterly audits and mm-hmm. just even trying to choose a carrier. Like in Oregon, we've got programs that are you can kind of u- use that are through the state. I eventually ended up switching to a pay-as-you-go model to help with the the audit process. But I'm curious about you know you being in the industry, like if you could kind of just give us a little bit about workers comp being mindful of the different like class codes Mm -hmm. and kind of how to navigate that when you're totally new to it. And you're just trying to make sure that you're, you know, maybe you're hiring your first one or two employees. What do you need to think about to make sure you're set up right, but don't, you know, go too overboard and don't have to become a workers comp expert to to get the job done? Yeah. So um, that's a good question. So the, the workers compensation, as I mentioned, is something that you're required to have no matter what state you're in, you need to have it um, when you hire your first employee. There are some nuances to this. So one of which is if you're the founder or you have a few founders and you're the only employees, um, you most often, I'm going to sort of speak in, in broad strokes here, you often have the opportunity to reject workers' compensation for yourself. So if you're the owner and you're the only one on payroll, you don't have to buy workers' comp for yourself most of the time. And the other thing is, so you mentioned, you know, in Oregon, there's some state schemes or you can buy it from private insurers. There are four states that are monopolistic, meaning you have to buy the insurance from the state the, and the insurance meaning workers' compensation, not not all insurance, but where they require that workers' comp is bought from the state and it cannot be brokered. So I cannot buy, I cannot, you know, get that insurance for you. You have to get it yourself from the state. And that's Washington, North Dakota, Ohio, and Wyoming. Um, obviously, you don't need to memorize this. <laughs> Talk to your broker. Um, but those states require that you buy it directly from the insurance company. Now, class codes or classifications of employee, that is sometimes kind of a difficult uh, thing to understand. There are, in each state, there are workers' comp bureaus, if you will, that provide advice and guidance on this. Um, Your broker can also provide advice and guidance, and so can the insurance underwriters. Um, And basically, what that does is it classifies employees, and then they multiply the payroll or that classification times a rate equals a premium. So if you are a CPG brand that has or that uses co-packers, you're not manufacturing yourself. So your payroll that you pay for um, your employees should not be, you should not be paying the rate of a manufacturer because you don't have people on the floor manufacturing, right? So we have class codes that are clerical, or sales. Um, those are typically the two that are, are used most in CPG brands that, that outsource the manufacturing. Of course, if you do have manufacturing in-house, you need to classify those employees as such. But you don't have to be an expert in this. This is something, again, that your, your broker guides you and helps you. And oftentimes, I just get the amount of annual payroll and a job description 
from my clients. And then I interpret that job description and put it in those buckets, right? And again, it's, it's most of the time it's clerical for the folks that I'm working with. Um, and then in terms of billing and uh, estimating the payroll and all of those things, there are different ways that you can go about it. Like you said, the, the pay as you go is is an option with some insurance companies, not all. Um, and the other option is that you estimate up front, okay, I'm going to be paying $1.4 million in payroll this year. That's my estimate. And the good news about workers' comp is that at the end of the year, or the policy term, rather, not, not necessarily the calendar year, but at the end of the policy, the insurance company says, okay, you estimated you were going to do $1.4 million in payroll what did you actually do in this time period? And if you paid more payroll than you estimated, you get charged an additional premium for that. And if you did less than what you estimated, you're going to get a return premium, right? Or you're going to get your money back for what you overestimated on. So it is, it's a very exact policy. The other thing I like about workers' comp or, or that makes it much more simpler is that the coverage is pretty universally you know, equal. It's not, it's not like other policies where you can have good, bad, and ugly, and you can have a very robust or you can have a very limited policy. The coverage is for employees who get hurt on the job, right? And paying their medical bills. So it's just really straightforward. There's not a lot of nuance to workers' comp in terms of coverage. The nuance is when is, uh, is really in the rate like which company has the best rate and how are you classifying employees, making sure that your employees are classified correctly because the rate is going to follow the classification. Great. I think it's really important, like what you mentioned there of that the that workers comp is more standardized that's that's helpful for me to know to just thinking through the because when there's already so many decisions to make mm -hmm. and then you're you're thinking more about the like you said, the class codes and the other pieces of what what's easiest to work with for your business. So that right. makes that makes a lot of sense. I want to touch on directors and officers liability or DNO because mm -hmm. this is something that Danielle saved me on. <laughs> <laughs> and also from my own background in angel investing and Libbar was a is a venture backed company. And so when we raise money, it's pretty standard in a stockholder agreement to, you know, to have DNO insurance as a requirement. And I know for you know, it was something that I'd had a DNO policy, and then we were running at a loss as expected as a venture backed company. And mm -hmm. the insurance carrier was like, Nope, we're done because you're still operating at a loss. And I'm like, Wait, we're a startup. Like, this is, you know, this, this is how this it is works. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, they gave us an extension. And then, you know, then they were like, You know what? We're just canceling it. And I had very little time. I called Danielle and I was like, Help. <laughs> and the the rates I was finding were absolutely astronomical compared to what I was um, paying. And man, she helped me out a pinch, sent me easy forms to complete, got me great new coverage, got us all set up, you know, super fast. And so, you know, A, I just want to shout that out is that was amazing. <laughs> and, Thank you. you know, really helped and came in, came in clutch. And then also, I think that, you know, DNO is just not something that a lot of people are familiar with. But if you have, right. especially outside shareholders, can you just kind of talk us through what that insurance is, what it does and when you need it? Yeah. So um, DNO, or is called Directors and Officers Liability, and for short, we call it DNO, is really, really an important policy when you have, like you said, outside shareholders. So oftentimes, this is something that is um, when you get funding, 
something I'm going to talk to you about, right? And I'm going to say, hey, these are the things that you should think about now. Because in a nutshell, it's very basic. At the very basic level, it protects the individual directors and officers of the company, which is really just employees and founders, right? And executives. It it protects the individuals in their capacity as directors and officers of the company. So it's a really quite a vague policy in that way. Um, But in a nutshell, it's like, look, if you've got a $3 million seed fund, you have $3 million of other people's money. And the goal, (laughs) what you told them is that they would get a return, right? So the DNO policy protects you in the management of the company and the decisions that you make along the way, right? And so what we typically see is claims from shareholders that come at transaction time. So that's IPO, uh, acquisition, or bankruptcy, typically, right? And so the types of allegations that we see that are typically covered under a DNO policy are things like, um, it can be dilution claims. Um, it can be that the founder didn't do their due diligence in the raising of another fund or another round. It can be that they're the investor doesn't agree with the valuation during this acquisition and they didn't get as much a return as they want and they blame you. Or um, maybe it's material misrepresentation, right? It's I invested a million dollars based on the information that you provided to me, but you fudged those numbers. That wasn't real. Or you didn't tell me about this other competitor that completely changes the landscape of you know the viability of your product. So um, it can be omission or misrepresentation. Um, there's a lot of different types of allegations that can be in there, but but at a basic level, it's that you're using other people's money and they expect you to do right by them. They expect you to make good decisions that provide a return on their investment. And if you don't provide the return on investment that they wanted or expected or you told would happen, they may sue you. And the DNO policy is the policy that responds to protect you. And there isn't another policy out there that does that. So it's a very, very important policy to have once you have funding. I've had a couple of clients buy it before you have funding. Um, but to be honest, if I were a CPG company, that's not where I'd be spending my money um, if I didn't have outside funding. And I think you know the next thing is that people always say, well, I got friends and family, or I have seed, or I got crowdfunding. Do I need this? It really depends. I'm pretty conservative on that way, right? I've seen these types of claims. I would buy it at any time that I had other people's money, whether or not they're friends and family, um, or it's just a little bit, or I was a part of an accelerator program, I'd be buying it. And yeah, I think to your point, about you know the insurance the insurance company that says well you're running around a loss we don't like that that is just the wrong home there are insurance companies out there that provide DNO that don't want to see distressed financials right because distressed financials can be cause for concern for claims but the reality is that those are just insurance companies that don't particularly want to write small businesses or startups so you have to have the right home and you have to be working with a broker that understands how to write startups. They understand how to present that information to the insurance companies and that know which insurance companies have an appetite for startups and those with distressed financials. Because you're right. I mean, that's the reality. Very, very, very few of my clients over the past decade have had positive financials. Right. Yeah. Because that's just, I mean, even from my time in in the tech industry or whatever, it's super common. You you have funding, yeah. you, you've got a burn rate. Right. It's just, it's part of how things work. So I'm like, I know there's got to be insurance for this. I just yeah. haven't found the right home, like you yeah. said. And you helped 
you helped find that. I'm with with DNO. Is there an element of so it's helping protect the decisions you make? But I'm guessing that still separates from any like actual like gross negligence or like actually committing some sort of fraud or or theft, right? Like <laughs> it's not giving you carte blanche to like right. do wild things, right? <laughs> right. And yeah, so you know, as a rule of thumb. You cannot buy insurance for committing crimes. So there's that, <laughs> you know, um, there are some nuances. And some of that is um, like you can buy uh, crime policies. We call them crime policies. I just says we, we can't insure for crime, but we have crime policies and that covers employee theft, but it wouldn't cover an executive stealing from the company, right? And so right. there are some ways in which there's insurance policies that protect against breaking a law but it depends on what type. Um, and, and that's actually, you know, a, another point here is, for instance, Prop 65, which is a huge concern for a lot of CPG startups, you can sometimes get coverage for defense of violating Prop 65, but you often cannot get affirmative coverage for having violated Prop 65, right? So there's a lot of things like that where there are statutes that you need to abide by. Some insurance policies will give you defense of that, but if you are found to have actually violated that, they don't cover it. So that is that is, you know, some of the nuance there. So yeah, you can't you can't be a director or officer going completely rogue, stealing money, breaking the <laughs> law, and then get sued and have Dino respond. They're going to yeah. say, no. <laughs> They're gonna exclude that. Not that any of our community is out there to do that. I just thought that that was right. an important clarification. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Great. I'm also wondering just if you could tell us a little bit more about what it looks like to work with Amelia Risk and, you know, what your process is if someone wants to reach out to you and any tips, you know, hopefully everyone's reaching out to you, but just what are good indicators that you you found the right broker or the right person to mm -hmm. work with because you are trusting this person to really guide you through the process and so you don't you don't want to get the wrong guide or a guide that doesn't know the right things about your industry and you touched on that a little, but I'm wondering if you could just kind of walk through what does it look like to work with you, work at, with Amelia, and um, and then how how do you do you have any tips for people navigating that process of even sign you know working with someone new like yourself or finding a broker in general? Yeah, I think you know the most important thing you can do at the beginning of this process is find a good broker, right? And because the value of your insurance policies, meaning the coverage that it provides, but also the premium that you pay and the service that you get is all going to follow the value of the broker, right? And so it's first and foremost important to be looking for the right person to work with. You know, I my feeling is that if you if your broker doesn't get on the phone with you to talk through all these things, then that is not the right person to be working with. Certainly not at the startup stage. There is just way too much nuance in this for you to be like, you know, reach out to someone, have them send you an app and then go, okay, here's your quote, right? Like, what, what is that? That's not enough. And I think that, you know, as I mentioned, at the large brokerages, startups are not prioritized. They, the brokers are, um, you know, incentivized not to be working with super small business. And it's just the way that they're structured. So while the big brokers have, you know, they have a ton of resources, and they have a lot of expertise on their teams and all of these things, they have a lot of leverage in the markets. Um, they're not really that interested in working with startups. And then there are some direct consumer options in terms of insurance that are sort of like buy it yourself. Uh, they're off the shelf, one size fits all products. And, and those can be administratively easy to find and get perhaps, but 
um, the concern there is that the coverage is the integrity of the coverage isn't quite there. When you are selling a product such as an insurance policy for everyone without having a human look at it, you're excluding anything you're really too concerned with, right? And so if you are getting a one-size-fits-all product for your business and this insurance policy just comes as is, um, it probably isn't that great. Um, so you know, we really want to be in between that. And that's why we started Amelia Risk. And so we want to be able to provide risk management consultation. We are coverage first, we are consultative, and we're focused on risk management. And those are the things that we really prioritize. We prioritize educating our clients because it it works better for us all if our clients understand what they're buying and why and feel like they are in the driver's seat there. And, you know, the other thing is that this probably does not come to as a surprise to anyone listening. But, um, you know, the insurance industry is pretty archaic. It, it's not very technologically advanced. And some of that we can change. Some of that we cannot. You know, things like the certificate of insurance, that's not up to us. That is an industry standard form. It has to be issued in a particular way, has to have information in the particular format. But there are some things we can change, like the application process. We use smart application software that allows you to uh, put in information and and it pre-fills it into all the different applications that are asking for that so that you don't have five PDFs and you have to fill out your name and address and revenue and employee count every single time on all five of those, right? So those are just some little tweaks that, that can be made um, along with online payments and using DocuSign. I mean, it sounds silly, but there's a lot of brokers out there that are not using the technology that's available. And we do. And that's one of the reasons that we we wanted to start this is that we wanted to give the the user experience, the the insured experience, a facelift. And it also makes our lives easier, right? So so that's really what what we're all about. And you know, we have worked with multi-million dollar companies. We've worked with, uh, you know, the 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 one person, one founder starting in a commercial kitchen, doing five thousand dollars in revenue a year. We work with really every everyone. We focus in the CPG space because that's what we love, and we think that you know, in order to provide the best advice and expertise. We should be we should be experts in that space, and we should be you know very niche. So that's what we're all about. But I think ultimately you'll know when you have a good experience and when you have a bad experience, right? If you walk away from a phone call with any partner or vendor, um, and you feel like okay, I know enough, I know enough about that thing to make the right decision, and I trust this person. That is probably when you found the right broker. If you walk away from it feeling like, I don't know that I'm going to get what I need from this person. I don't trust that they're going to not rip me off and tell me I don't need something that I, or tell me I need something that I don't, you know, then that's not, that's not the right situation. And if your broker doesn't want to take the time to explain these policies um, or explain how they work or get on the phone and review the ingredients exclusion in your general liability policy, that that just turn around, go, go somewhere else, because those things are a part of our job. That is our job, right? It's to get the right coverage for you and for you to understand what you're buying. So that's my two cents on how to choose a broker. I, I strongly advise choosing the broker first and then moving forward on all policies with that broker. What I see a lot of people do, and I, I understand, is they ask as many brokers as possible to get as many quotes as possible. But that ends up actually leaving you with having to make decisions that you may not know how to make because 
you don't know how to read the policies. And it also can actually provide quite a mess on the back end with insurance brokers, you know, bumping up against each other in the market. Um, so I think find an advisor that you trust and you feel like knows what they're doing and they've had experience doing it <laughs> and they, they work with other clients like you, right? That, that is what I would, would recommend. Great. That's super helpful. And I have to say just from a, from, you know, working with you myself, you're the most tech forward broker that I've worked with. <laughs> like I was amazed. I was like, oh, this application is smart. Like I don't have to refill this out or I don't have to fax this or, (laughs) you know, do a fillable PDF and then try to figure out how to like, you know, I've had to take pictures of stuff or whatever. And so it's like, oh, this is, this is so simple. I love this. So I definitely can attest to that. And also, also just that I think you're spot on with just finding that relationship with feels right. That feels right. Because I've probably talked with, you know, or probably worked with about at least five different brokers. And some of them even were super great people where you're like, I would trust this person, but they don't know enough about my industry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you want someone that you feel good about the industry. And I remember, you know, (laughs) I haven't been paid to say this or anything. I just really uh, loved working with with Danielle. (laughs) Um, But, you know, when I was able to call, like we talked through DNO or whatever, I was like, oh, this person understands my industry. They understand what I'm talking about. They get where I'm coming from. Like it was just a breath of fresh air. And I think that's the feeling that you want to have when you found that right broker fit and that you're looking for. And sometimes I think when we're talking about topics that maybe we don't love talking about, like insurance, it's like, oh, well, you know, you just pick your poison kind of thing. And I would say, no, you can find a broker that will be an extension of your team and that can be a good fit for you and will be and will be a good partner for your right. business. No, I entirely agree. And thank you for saying that. And it, you know, in in starting and running my own business, I I understand this more now than ever that you don't have to work with people that you don't like and you don't have to work with people that don't thrill you, right? Like it you can work with the vendors that make sense to you and that are actually partners. That's really what you know, I've made an effort in doing in my in running my own business, but then also choosing my clients, right? I, I I may not be for everyone, but I like the relationships where I feel like an extension of their team. And I feel like we've got a good relationship in terms of I know the things that matter to you and you're comfortable telling me the things that matter to you and the things that don't. And then, you know, I can respond that way. Right. But I I honestly think like you're running your business, you're doing your thing. Life is too short to work with people that you don't like or that don't serve you. Yes, absolutely. And if people want to reach out to you, can they just go to your, we'll link in the show notes, of course, but should they go to the website, shoot you an email? Is that the best way to connect or what's the best way to directly connect with you? Yeah. So um, I'm I'm in the startup CPG Slack, um, Danielle Holyoke, and my email is danielle at ameliarisk.com. So that's A-M-E-L-I-A-R-I-S-K.com. And you can reach me that way. Um, or you can find me in the Slack, or you can go to ameliarisk.com and my contact info is also there. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Danielle. This has been super awesome 
just so much packed with so much great info for everyone in our community, I think here. And I hope people reach out if they have any further questions or if they're looking for for coverage for their business. But this has just been so valuable. So I really appreciate your time. And thanks for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so fun to chat with you about this. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our partner, Amelia Risk. Visit ameliarisk.com for more information. That's A-M-E-L-I-A risk.com. And the link is in the show notes. This Startup CPG podcast is executive produced by me, Jesse Freitag. Theme music is by the Super Fantastics. We'd love to have you join our community of founders and experts. Get the invite at startupcpg.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. It's the easiest way to help us grow our community. See you next time.